Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Liz. Um, I, uh, my wife told me we shouldn't sing Joy to the World today, but she didn't win out. So there's, there's that. Um, J.C. Ryle says, we became Christians by faith in Jesus. We stay Christians by faith in Jesus. And we grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. In other words, the source of becoming a disciple and growing as a disciple is a person's faith in Jesus, plain and simple. It is the most crucial truth that our text for today reveals. As our passage begins, we find Paul returning from Corinth to Antioch, which was his sending church on his way back. Verses 19 through 21 reveal that the apostle passes through Ephesus where he preaches once and to where he eventually returns as part of his third missionary journey. For the time being, however, he leaves behind a couple who had become very dear to him in Corinth named Priscilla and Aquila. It might now seem that I'm going a bit off my so-called beaten path, but I feel the need to highlight a point of emphasis that we simply should not ignore. Up until Acts chapter 13 and verse 42, every time you find the pairing of Barnabas and Saul, the sequencing of their names appear in that order. But after Paul is filled with the Spirit, and after he confronts Elimus Bargesus, Paul's name always comes before that of Barnabas. And that is not insignificant. Name sequence in Scripture matters. And so Paul is taking the lead in the missionary era in accordance with the earlier words of Jesus to him. I mention this simply because if you study the sequence of Priscilla and Aquila's names, more often than not, Priscilla's name comes first. We are seeing over and over and over again the way that barriers are being broken down in the emerging church between the Jew and the Greek, the male and the female, and the slave and the free. Paul declares those precise words, in fact, in Galatians 3 and verse 28. While Paul was in Corinth as part of his second missionary journey, the apostle would have followed his regular routine of going to the area synagogue first, just as you see him doing in Acts 18:19. What I believe transpires after Paul leaves Athens for Corinth is that when he goes to the synagogue, he becomes acquainted with a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Whether he leads this couple to Christ or whether they were already believers, we don't know. But we are told that Paul ultimately lives with them and he works with them as tent makers. Paul was always bivocational. And now Priscilla and Aquila, who shared in Paul's secondary work, soon find themselves sharing primarily in his calling of making Jesus known. 
You can draw out part of my interpretation of these events by reading for yourselves Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. Subsequently, at Acts 18, 18, and 18, 26, and then again in Romans 16, 3, and 2 Timothy 4, 19, Priscilla's name precedes that of her husband's. Only at the start of Acts 18, and only in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, is that not the case. Why does Priscilla's name come before her husband's more frequently? Women during this time period were not given prominence in culture at all. In fact, the time we are first introduced to Priscilla, she is simply called the wife of Aquila the Jew. Nothing more needs to be said because that was her societal position. But Jesus breaks down such positional spirit completely. Read how Luke in his gospel breaks down that spirit by highlighting women and how in Acts, Luke intentionally puts Priscilla's name first. Am I reaching? Hmm. Was Priscilla's name, as some claim, only mentioned ahead of Aquila because she had a stronger personality than that of her husband? You must know that Luke wrote as one skilled in Greek language. He was highly educated. He was a physician. And the way to emphasize something in Greek was to place it first in a list or to place it first or last in the sentence so as to give it prominence. Luke knew what he was doing. He definitely intentionally set out to draw attention to Priscilla. Is there no room during the start of the missionary era to acknowledge partnership with men and women for ministry and discipleship? Does the church not meet in, and please catch the sequence, Priscilla and Aquila's home, as Romans 16, three through five indicates. And then at the end of Acts chapter 18, do not Priscilla and Aquila again catch the sequence, instruct and disciple Apollos. At the very least, the principle behind the sequencing of Priscilla's and Aquila's names show that they both played a substantial ministerial role in the early church. But would not Paul, in accordance with 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, command that Priscilla remain quiet? It was in Ephesus, after all, where Timothy was set in place as the lead pastor when Paul writes to the young minister. And here in that passage of 1 Timothy chapter 2, it reads, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Hmm. Doesn't Adam come before Eve? And then based on 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, which immediately 
follows what I just read, aren't only men to assume the role of teaching elder. There are complexities, aren't there? And the position that I hold amid the complexities might offend some people on both sides of the proverbial aisle. So don't throw anything at me this morning. To begin with, much in the same way as the text concerning head coverings of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, we must acknowledge the historical and cultural context before drawing out the intended universal biblical principle. The universal principle has to do with our attitudes in worship. For instance, Paul does not literally mean in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 that every time men pray, they must do so with lifted hands. If so, Bob, you just violated scripture. But Paul does intend for men to maintain a proper attitude in their worship. The text extends to the heart of a man. He should enter into worship and into prayer without any anger set upon his heart. Rabbi Hayab bin Hashi taught that a man should not pray whose dispositions are not calm. The raising of holy hands in Jewish culture applies to that of a worshiper's peaceful dealings with others. Many men, and I can certainly attest to this, need to set aside their anger and set their attention instead on the holiness of the God to whom they pray. The universal principle then for women when it pertains to head coverings is not that, well, Charlotte Gunter needs to be wearing a head covering. Charlotte, why aren't you wearing a head covering this morning? That's not the principle at play. Women could both pray and prophesy in the church, as 1 Corinthians 11.5 says. However, head coverings at that time was set aside by Paul because there were certain sects within Corinth that were promoting prostitution and sexual deviance in the city. And Paul did not want women to be associated or identified with them. So the universal principle had nothing to do with head coverings. Rather, it is about the attitude that avoids all appearance of impropriety. I don't know very many people who would still insist that women wear head coverings while in church. Likewise, in communication with Timothy, Paul does not want for women to disrupt worship through immodest dress or through focusing on external things. No, he wants them to be known for their godliness. He then adds that he does not want for women to usurp biblical roles. To usurp authority over a man is a better translation in verse 12 than to assume authority. And the words, she must be quiet, does not imply absolute silence, but rather it means that she should maintain a submissive attitude under a spiritual order of leadership. That said, I believe the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 draws upon a connection that exists between a husband and his wife. If you carefully read the passage, pay attention to the shift from the plural use of women 
at verse 10 to the singular use of woman in verse 11. The fact that the text is likely dealing with spiritual headship within marriage finds additional support through the reference of Adam and Eve. I might also insert here that childbearing reference of verse 15 is alluding back to the promise in Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman who is Christ, our Savior, all of our Savior. So... Who should be the spiritual leader in the family? Paul teaches that it should be a husband and a father. Sadly, too often, like Adam did in the Garden of Eden, men shirk that biblical responsibility and families suffer because of it. Should wives submit to their husbands only in so much as their husbands love them, serve them, and sacrifice for them as Christ did the church. That is what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Would Priscilla then have had any issue submitting to her husband? I don't think so, because it seems to me anyway that Aquila probably had no problem putting his wife ahead of himself and serving her as Jesus served the church. But the text from Ephesians 5 does not teach, not even in the slightest, that women should submit to men in general. How then do we carry this principle over to our attitude in worship? The home is but a microcosm of the church, and the church includes both single as well as married women. The question before us then is what role should women assume in ministry? Ultimately, I would leave that to your conscience in light of your prayerful interpretation of the full counsel of God's word, not in light of any denominational stance, mind you, because no denomination, including the Southern Baptist Convention, is going to get everything right. In fact, I agree with William Mounts that if one position on the subject were truly clear and obvious, then there would be not so many significantly different positions held by respectable scholars. And I would insert here that respectable scholars contend all the way from the stance that women can serve as lead pastors. My wife actually falls into that camp. To the stance that women should not teach men in church at all. And I have several good friends who land in that camp. To the middle ground stance to which I have humbly and non-dogmatically Arrived, And mind you, I am most certainly not going to get everything right. Like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17, you should always test my teaching with the scriptures. The lead pastor of the church, as I think 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 confirms, should be a man. Sadly, too often men have abused their biblical responsibility in the church and churches suffer because of it. But beyond that, I do not find limitations for women in roles of ministry. To begin with, consider the first century church did not offer adult Sunday school classes. For that matter, the first century church 
did not offer a host of ministry programs that you might find in congregations today. That means that Paul must have only been directing his teaching to women who were attending public gatherings for worship during sermonic instruction. Paul wants for women to receive the preached word with the same submissive spirit as their male counterparts during times of corporate worship. In other words, Paul teaches that our worship should be orderly and without disruption, which he also, by the way, discusses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And you better be careful how you read and discern that text. But for the record, at the time that Paul was writing, it would have been absolutely unheard of within Jewish culture for women to receive any instruction alongside men. In fact, a popular saying was, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Paul was by no means, by no means, a sexist or a misogynist. Second, saying that women cannot teach men would have to come within some contextual limitations. While Priscilla was not a pastor, she was not a pastor. She is identified as a co-worker with Paul. Again, read Romans 16 verse 3. Plus, Priscilla clearly took on a role of instructing and discipling Apollos. And that said, what is in play in this text provides a caveat that many individuals will cite. The caveat is this. Apollos was actually not yet a convert to Christ. And yes, it is okay for a woman to teach an unbeliever, just not a believing man. For instance, some contend that it's okay for a woman to be a missionary and for her to instruct and disciple men in that context. But once the men are mature enough in the faith, she can no longer teach them. I have come to respectfully differ with such a position. Insisting that no woman can ever teach male believers seems exegetically incorrect to me, both culturally and contextually. The church met in Priscilla and Aquila's home. I cannot readily dismiss that. I cannot assume that Priscilla never taught any men there. Did she teach in submission to apostolic leadership, just like Junia in Romans 16.7 did? I believe so. Plus, we must affirm that Paul held a deep, deep respect for women in ministry. Of the roughly 40 people that the apostle mentions in his letters as his fellow workers, 16 of them are women. That is almost half in a culture that did not show respect to women. Paul most certainly did. It's also safe to say that none of the apostles were ever hindered by the teaching of these women, but they were helped by it. More to the point, the gospel was never hindered by the teaching of these women, but the good news was advanced through them. And there, my friends, is the universal biblical principle. May the gospel be advanced through both men and women. And let me finally say that I hope to never become so proud where I could not receive instruction or counsel from a mature, godly woman. You might recall 
my reference earlier in the series to Henrietta Mears, a woman who taught and discipled over 400 Christian men, Christian men, all who went on to faithfully serve as pastors or evangelists. I am thus struck by the humility of Apollos, and I believe that you should be as well. Think about the portrait that we have of this young man. One, Apollos was incredibly learned. He was brought up in Alexandria where he had access at that time to the greatest library in the world as well as to the teachings of some of the greatest philosophers like Euclid and Philo. But for all of his learning, Apollos was not yet a Christian. Two, Apollos knew the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament at that time, both backwards and forwards, but for all of his knowledge, Apollos was not yet a Christian. Three, Apollos had a gift with words. He was a dynamic speaker who could hold a crowd's attention like some of the great preachers of our day. He spoke with the rhetoric that Apollos, that Aristotle advanced with logos, with ethos, with pathos. But for all of his eloquence, Apollos was not yet a Christian. For Apollos taught about the things of Jesus. He was familiar with the message of John the Baptist and about the coming Messiah, but he could not yet sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. He did not yet know the meaning of the cross. He did not yet know the power of Christ's resurrection. He did not yet know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For all of his teaching, Apollos was not yet a Christian. And finally, Apollos was an upright individual who taught upright things. He wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a womanizer. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't desiring other people's things. By all accounts, onlookers would say that he was a mighty good person. But Apollos was still not yet a Christian. Lloyd John Ogilvy thus says, Apollos is the patron saint of those who find that religion is never enough. Because you see, no matter how educated a person is, no matter how polished a person is, no matter how many right answers a person can give, and no matter how good that person might appear, such a person is lost and going to hell without Jesus. And it requires humility to receive that truth. Take the church reformer, Hugh Latimer. You see, Hugh Latimer was a very learned man with a thorough knowledge of scripture. He could speak with eloquence and he had considerable influence in the church as a bishop. Only Latimer did not remain a Catholic bishop. In fact, soon after the Catholic Mary Tudor ascended to the throne, Hugh Latimer would be martyred in 1555 for speaking out about the need for church reformation. 
The dying testimony of Latimer as he was burned at the stake alongside Nicholas Ridley was this, and I love these words, it's the reason why I'm sharing them with you. Be brave, Master Ridley, play the man. Yes, we shall die this day, but by the grace of God, we will light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. How did this former advancing Catholic bishop, a learned, knowledgeable, eloquent, religious man, come to such a place where he would die as a martyr? You see, while Latimer had known about Jesus, he did not yet know Jesus as his Savior. He had not yet believed the gospel like many others associated being a good person and doing good works would set your path to heaven. That was Latimer's thinking. But there was a young monk who knew Latimer and who admired him. The monk was simply known as Little Bilney. You see, he was Little Bilney because he was small. And he was not only small in stature, but he was one who lacked education. He was not highly regarded among the religious elite. But the one thing that Little Bilney had was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And Bilney, recognizing Latimer's intellectual prowess, his giftedness as a speaker, Bilney believed that if only Latimer could trust in the true gospel, if only he would believe in Jesus Christ, that he would become a tremendous force for reformation in England. And so Bilney prayed about it, trying to find a way to reach Latimer with the gospel. And finally he had an idea. You see, at that time, since priests were required to hear those who wanted to confess their sins, one day, Bilney saw Latimer was serving in the church, and so he asked for Latimer to hear his confession. And so within that confessional booth, Bilney confessed the gospel to Latimer. He began by confessing to Latimer that he was a sinner. And he confessed that he was unable to save himself by any good work. But then Bilney shared how Jesus died for his sins, how through faith and faith alone in the atoning work of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ had been imputed to him. It was in that confessional booth with little Bilney that Hugh Latimer heard the gospel message clearly and was converted to faith in Christ. And it was monumental for the English Reformation because of the important role that Latimer would go on to play. And something like that happened with Apollos when he became a true disciple. Acts 18.28 speaks of the important role that Apollos would go on to play in the missionary era. Within this portrait, you and I are supposed to discover the humility that it takes in becoming a disciple. Apollos was not too proud to sit under the instruction of a barely educated, blue-collared, tent-making couple who knew Jesus Christ personally. And ultimately, the truth of Christ and the life of the Spirit only come to those who are humble enough to listen and be taught. And sometimes, believe me, the greatest truths 
that a man will ever hear, even if that man goes on to earn an MDiv, even if that man holds a PhD, will take shape at the feet of a grandmother who barely finished eighth grade. I realize that the subject of today's message has become a divisive one. But friends, it should never divide us. Regardless of the position someone comes to hold on an issue like the role of women in the church, that is a secondary matter. What I mean by that, it is not even remotely central to a person's saving faith. Can you believe one thing about the position of women in the church that's different from mine? Yes, you can. I would say to you, search out the scriptures. Let the scriptures be your guide. But what in the church we must all agree upon, that which in the church is not a secondary matter, is what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. How it is we become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, it is clear, it is obvious, one. You and I can only become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ, nothing else. Two, you and I can stay a Christian because Jesus keeps us in the faith, no one else. And three, you and I can only grow as Christians by maturing through our faith in Jesus Christ, no way else. Keep Christ central. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That church is essential. And so I just have one question for you today. Not what view you take on the role that women should hold in the church or any other secondary interpretive matters like it. But my question is this, are you washed? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you a disciple of Christ? If the answer today is no, not yet. I'm a patron saint of religion, but I don't have a genuine relationship with Christ as my savior. I would ask today that you come Today is the day if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart to get right with Jesus, not with religion, with Christ. Pray with me. Lord, there are so many things that are being debated, tossed about. So many things that are dividing your church. And Lord, we, we need to understand what your word teaches about all things. 
We need to submit to you as Lord. Before, before we can submit to you as Lord, before we can yield to your teaching, before we can say, I submit to that, even though it might be hard for me to hear, before we can do that, we've got to know you as our Lord. Yes, but before that as our Savior. And so today I pray that if there be anyone here needs to understand more about what it means. Apollos needed to know what it meant. There's anyone here who needs to know what it means to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. I ask today that they would come humbly, without reservation, and say, I want to yield my life to Christ. Lord, move, we pray, in the hearts that need to hear this truth. Today, Jesus, be glorified. Amen.